Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism. Seems to me like Mormon dodoism is alive and well. Jeffrey R. Holland, the representative in Mormonism of dodoism, gave a speech that was very divisive, bigoted, sort of truly unnecessary and idiotic to the BYU College this week. And he is once again myopically and with great bias and prejudice speaking against the LBGDQ group of homosexuals and lesbians. Holland appears to think that his stance is justified by the scriptural commandments from God. And that caught my attention, so I've been doing some looking into this. And I don't think he has any scriptural justification whatsoever from any of the scriptures, Old or New Testament, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, or the Book of Mormon. And without a scriptural basis to justify the bigotry within the Salt Lake Temple, or Salt Lake Temple, Salt Lake Church hierarchy, uh, I don't see that they have a leg to stand on. And I don't see why we have to accept their prejudice at all, no matter who they think they are, right? So I'm going to share my research with you on the scriptural basis on how the Bible does not justify being anti-homosexual or anti-lesbian. So here we go. John Welch, one of the founders of Farms, the now defunct Farms, one of the apologists actually, he said, although the law of the gospel is never expressly defined in scripture, I understand this law to be the law of love and generosity. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and great commandment, the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The apologists get it. The scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites in Salt Lake and Dodos don't. Isn't that remarkable? Perhaps they ought to look to their apologists for the proper educational approach to this issue that is so divisive in Mormonism for no good reason other than the old farts prejudice. My thesis is that we should stop judging the homosexuals by using the Bible against them since the Bible is used erroneously. It's used out of historical, theological, and ethical context by the self-righteous and arrogant, supposedly spiritually superior modern church leaders, both in Christianity and Mormonism. The Bible is distorted. It's quoted out of context without any desire for loving or even trying to understand any of these homosexuals, God's children. By their actions, they will be judged by God, no other. Don't pass judgment so you don't get judged. Don't forget the judgment you hand out is going to be the judgment that comes back at you. 
So why notice the sliver in your neighbor's eye when you've got a timber in your own? That's, uh, that's Jesus, by the way, who has a pretty decent authority, at least for the churches he should. Ours is to love. Ours is to pray for them, to be kind to them, to have charity for them, to be their friends, neighbors, and common human beings. The pure love of Christ, charity, the pure love of Christ, is what should prevail. Very few exhibit it when they're dealing with the LBGTQs. However, let's get to the basis of what the Bible actually says and then get the context, which many churches just refuse to give us. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, it is abomination. Now the Bible is straightforward here. The Hebrew is interesting too. Thou shalt not lie, the Hebrew word is shakav, the sexual connection. Thou shalt not lie with mankind. Here the Hebrew says zakar, the male, definitely. Because it is abomination. This is to'iva, abomination, something disgusting and abhorrence. That's Leviticus 18.22. So the Hebrew here is truly explicit, but what is the context? Yeah? And you say, oh, come on, now you're making stuff up for the Bible. No, I'm not. Jacob Milgram, one of the most prominent Jewish rabbis and powerhouse biblical scholars, especially on Leviticus and the Levitical laws, has something to say concerning the Bible and the prohibition of homosexuality. Hey, neighbor, how you doing? It's a glorious night in the park. I'm out here enjoying myself. Well, I have to say, maybe both good news or bad news uh, to my Christian friends, depending on their position on gay and lesbian rights. He then references to Leviticus 18.22, the scripture I just read. This biblical prohibition is addressed only to Jews. Non-Jews are affected only if they reside in the Holy Land, but not elsewhere. See the closing exhortation in Leviticus 18 verses 24 through 30. So it's incorrect to apply this prohibition on a universal scale. This is in his article, Does the Bible Prohibit Homosexuality? in the Bible Review, December 1993. The lazy learners, the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and dodos in Salt Lake City could probably quit being so lazy and go look this up. It's in their own BYU library if they cared to learn. Milgram says he is speaking to the Jews for whom the prohibition stands, not the rest of the world. What is the rationale for this prohibition is the real question. Here, understanding the Jewish rationale, ritual, and history is where we can understand the issue from the biblical viewpoint itself. Applying a Christian ethos and a morality to an ancient text over 2,000 years is incorrectly applying modern thought and ethics onto history and religion. The ancient Jews, 
the priests specifically spoke not in words but in rituals. The laws of impurity found in Leviticus 12 through 15 and Numbers 19, these make no sense medically or hygienically, according to Milgram. They lead us to suspect that the biblical impurity laws have absolutely nothing to do with disease. They constitute a symbolic system unified by the basic rationale which stems from only three sources. Certain skin diseases, genital discharges, and carcasses or corpses. That's Leviticus 11 and Numbers 19. Their common denominator is death. Male genital discharge is semen, female is that of blood. These represent the life force, so their loss represents death. The wasting away of the body, the common characteristic of the highly visible, biblically impure skin diseases, symbolizes the death process as much as the loss of genital, blood, and semen. This then is what the priests are saying, and this is so important. Impurity stands for the force of death. Hence, one should eschew impurity, of course. The impurity is what is the to'iva, the abomination, not the involvement with sexual concepts. This is also brought out in his excellent article, The Dead Sea Temple Scroll, wherein also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, sex was not allowed in the Jerusalem Temple because of ritual impurity, not sinfulness. And from the Christian perspective, this is completely misunderstood. From the Mormon perspective, this is completely misunderstood. For the Jew, sex is ritually impure, not sinfully impure, and not morally impure. That has nothing to do with it. When we look at the various prohibitions in Leviticus, we notice that there is no prohibition against lesbianism. Can it be that lesbianism did not exist in ancient times? Well, we know it did because of the old Israelite Babylonian text in the work of the lesbian poet Sappho, 600 BC approximately, from the Isle of Lesbos, hence lesbianism. So the fundamental difference between the homosexual acts of men and women is that in lesbianism there is no spilling of seed. And this is really an interesting distinction. The life is not symbolically lost, and therefore lesbianism is not prohibited in the Bible. Notice it is the ritual aspects, which is the reason for lesbianism not being included in the prohibitions. It has nothing to do with morality from the Jewish ritual viewpoint. Lesbianism isn't even a ritually defying act because it doesn't destroy the symbolism that male homosexuality does. Ritual, from the standard definition, is the order of words prescribed for a religious ceremony. It's a ceremonial action and a repetition of that action. 
Milgram has written concerning the ancient Israel and their rituals of purifying from a temple standpoint in another article of his, The Temple and Biblical Israel, Kinships of Meaning. He discusses the blood of the Hatat on the horns of the altar. The Hatat must be rendered as purification or purgation offering. So who is it, or what is it, that is being ritually purified with this, off with this ritual? Surprisingly, it is not the offerer of the sacrifice that is being purified. The hatat was brought by an individual under two circumstances, severe physical impurity and that of the parturient, the leper, or the gonorrheic, Leviticus 12 through 15, or because of the commission of certain inadvertent sins. Clearly, physical impurity itself is removed by ablution, of course, because they're impure. So you shall wash your clothes and bathe in the water, Leviticus 15.8, of course. Spiritual impurity, on the other hand, this is caused by inadvertent violation of prohibitive commandments, Leviticus 4.2. This requires no purification right whatsoever. The fact that this sin is inadvertent and that he feels guilty means that he has undergone inner purification. Again, this emphasis on ritual. Milgram says that the use of blood is proof that the hatat is not purifying its offerer. Moses took the hatat blood with his fingers and put some on each of the horns of the altar, thereby decontaminating the vayehata, the altar, Leviticus 8.15. The hatat blood is the ritual detergent, is how Milgram puts it. Very interesting idea. The use of this blood is confined to the sanctuary, but it is never applied to a person. For instance, the rites for the healed leper and the priest's consecration call for both the hatat and the blood daubing, but the blood daubing ritual stems from other sacrificial animals and not the hatat blood, as we see. The hatat blood sanctifies the sanctuary and its sancta by daubing the altar with the hatat blood or by bringing it inside the sanctuary, Leviticus 16, 14 through 19. The priest purges the most sacred objects and areas of the sanctuary on behalf of the person who caused their contamination by his own physical impurity or inadvertent offense. The inadvertent offender is never called impure and hence requires no ablutions because there's no reason to wash him. He's not impure. In his case, the formula reads Ve kipper hakohen ve nislalo. The priest shall perform the purgation rite that he may be forgiven and the impure person, the formula reads, ve kifer ha hokein ha kokein 
de tahera. And this means the priest shall perform the purgation rite that he shall be clean. So the impure person needs the purgation rite and the sinner needs forgiving. Very interesting, isn't it? Those coming into contact with corpses or those afflicted with pelvic discharges also need purification. So we see that the impurities were not moral or ethical, but ritual in nature. This has been necessary to show in order to understand that homosexual prohibition in Leviticus is for ritual purity reasons and hence apply strictly to ancient Israel's Jewish priests. That's who this prohibition is for. Not to all the other nations in time and place. Daniel Day Williams has shown that in ancient Israel what God requires is to love him and to be faithful to him. The faithfulness within the covenant is based on love and obedience to the moral requirements which God has established as the laws of the covenant. These moral requirements include love to the neighbor. The decisive statement he finds in Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, this love is not restricted to one's people. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself. Bernard W. Anderson in his article The Biblical Circle of Homosexual Prohibition, this also in the Bible Review, June 1993 for you lazy learners, the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and dodos in Salt Lake City, you could probably bump down to BYU and find this one as well says, because we are constantly using the Bible to spell out our moral convictions, our ethical considerations, and our religious lives, we need to understand the Bible from its point of view, not our modern biased stance, which is projected back onto the Bible. That's the wrong way to approach this. Everyone usually turns to Genesis and the creation story. At the outset, God makes male and female, that is, heterosexuality. He first created them as biological life, the nefesh hayah, along with the pairs of all the other creatures, Genesis 1, 20-22. And he tells them all to multiply and be fruitful in their own mediums, whether that medium is water, earth, air, it doesn't matter. The context is clear here. The heterosexuality is established for the future of all of the various species. Heterosexuality is the biological norm if there are to be future generations of living beings, both animal and human. Okay, that's established. The creation theology of Genesis 
affirms the Creator's wisdom in creating heterosexual beings and emphasizes the divine blessings that enables both animals and we humans to produce and multiply. The story accordingly unfolds in a series of genealogies extending back from Adam to Noah, the famous begats in Genesis chapter 5. Then the narrative portrays the animals coming onto the Ark of Noah, both in pairs, male and female, to be preserved. And then after the flood, God gives a command that echoes the imperative of creation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9, 1 and 7. Within the theological circle of creation, the question is, is the biological norm for reproduction also an ethical norm for human sexual relations? When we turn to the particular people of God, known as Israel in the Hebrew Bible, in the covenantal context, we find explicit laws against homosexuality in the Holiness Code of the Book of Leviticus. Leviticus 17 through 26. Leviticus 18 begins drawing a distinction between Israel's lifestyle and the other nations and surrounding people. There is no explicit prohibition against homosexual relations between women. The Levitical law is not grounded in the universal law of creation, but in the specific and the limited Levitical laws for the priests of Israel only. He notes that Christians will examine the New Testament, of course, always a good thing, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Romans 1, 26, and 27 for the ethical teachings of the church. For now, we've only been talking about the Jewish Old Testament, and we have found that homosexuality is not prohibited among women, nor among the other nations, just the limited number of priests in Israel. This very important point needs to be stressed because of the American condemnation of homosexuality without any understanding of the nature of the event or of its cause or of the nature of the Bible view of it. James B. Nelson, now this man is very important. He is a counselor for troubled people concerning this issue in his article in the book Peculiar People, Mormons and Same-Sex Orientation, he says any specific Bible passage relating to homosexuality must be interpreted first with several things in mind. So let's see how to do this. First, homosexuality as a psychosexual orientation. This is not dealt with in the Bible. The concept of sexual orientation is distinctly modern. The Bible's references are without exception statements about certain types of same-sex acts. In all probability, the biblical writers assumed all persons to be naturally heterosexual. 
Hence, those who engaged in homosexual activity were doing so in willful, unconscious violation of their own heterosexual natures. Second, the strong link between sex and procreation, particularly in the Old Testament, must be understood in a particular historical context. A small Hebrew tribe in a hostile environment indeed needed children for its survival. Third, both the Old and the New Testaments, though I believe they also contain a doctrine of radical human equality, they are written from a very male patriarchal point of view. The man's view is what prevails in our written text. Fourth, coupled with the procreative emphasis and the patriarchal assumptions, there was a biological misunderstanding. The pre-scientific male mind, knowing nothing about eggs or ovulation, and assuming a special life-transmitting power of semen alone, frequently concluding that deliberate, non-productive expulsion of semen was a serious life-destroying act. Fifth, biblical references to homosexual acts always reflected genuine anxiety now about idolatrous religious practices. In the ancient Mideast, idolatry frequently found sexual expression. In such practices, both the heterosexual and homosexual sex was depersonalized, and it was seen as a mysterious power which one must dedicate to the deity out of fear. Given these contextual factors now, what might we make of these specific Bible passages? The answer in short is, not very much. In the vast spectrum of biblical material, there are surprisingly few references to homosexual acts, and almost all of these speak of religious, social conditions significantly different from what we live in today. Consider briefly the most frequently cited texts, those that deal mostly with gay and lesbian clients, have had personally to deal with. This is the biblical views that are quoted against the homosexual people and the lesbians, and let's see what's going on. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is a famous one. Of course, Sodom was destroyed because it was homosexual. However, that wasn't the sin. Biblical scholarship has discovered that the problem with this view is it is a violation of the solid law of hospitality. Very interesting. The social justice in the ancient Hebrews view is the violation of the norm of hospitality to the stranger. Even if one grants a primarily sexual focus of the story, the only reasonable conclusion is that here are condemnations of sexual intercourse with divine messengers of violent gang rape. That is what it would be against. But not condemnation of other forms of homosexual genital activity or of homosexuality as an orientation. Raphael Patai, the noted Middle East anthropologist, explains it saying Sodom and Gomorrah in these biblical verses 
what these verses condemn and execrate is the intended violation by the groups, the mobs of the visiting strangers. This would have been rape, and therefore it's just as evil as if it is the rape of a woman. In fact, worse, because it would have also been a flagrant violation of the sacred institution of hospitality. This is what the Bible is arguing against. The New Testament contains no recorded words of Jesus at all on this subject. Are you paying attention to this dodoism in Mormonism? Jesus doesn't even address the subject. It's just not that important to him. Not only does he not address it while he's here on earth visiting the Jews in the old world, even in his visit to the Americas in the Book of Mormon, he never even broaches the subject. It's a complete non-issue with Jesus. This is used as one of the lesser, more than more important arguments to get us enraged, to get us whipped up in our bigotry and prejudice and biases. The principal references are Paul in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and the Pauline writer in 1 Timothy 1. The two later texts deal with types of activities, however, which it was believed warrant both excluding people from the kingdom of God. Both passages, however, carefully interpreted, are directed towards all sexual persons, appear not to be directed toward all homosexual persons, but rather to specific kinds of homosexual acts, namely that of exploitation, that of homosexual prostitution, and that of sexual use of boys by adult males. Paul's words in Romans 1 are usually taken as the strongest New Testament rejection of homosexuality. Here is the one and only verse, actually, that has reference to both the male and the female same-sex activity. However, he speaks specifically of same-sex acts that express idolatry, there's your context, and acts undertaken in lust, not mutual tenderness, or mutual respect by heterosexuals not willingly acting contrary who willingly act contrary to their own sexual natures clients and their counselors therefore need to be aware that careful examination of biblical materials renders no definitive scriptural word on homosexuality as a sexual orientation hey neighbor or upon homosexual genital expression in a relationship of respect and love. Specifically, what the Bible gives us is several references to certain kind of sex acts in quite different religious and cultural contexts from those faced by gay men and lesbian women today. Often forgotten, too, is the manner in which Scripture celebrates instances of genuine love between two men or two women, David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, Jesus and the beloved disciple. King David and Jonathan were thought to be homosexual partners. 
Surely they were more than the best of friends because the Bible describes them as lovers, even as soul mates. The soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 1 Samuel 18.1 See, in David's eloquent tribute to Jonathan, in fact, and Saul, of course, he, he described Jonathan's love as wonderful, passing the love of women. 2 Samuel 1.26 The Hebrew word here again is ahab, meaning to have affection sexually. Tony Campolo notes in his book, 20 Hot Potatoes Christians Won't Touch. Does Christianity have any good news for homosexuals today? I am simply reminding Christians, he says, that we are supposed to love people, even those people who offend us. Far from having such a vehement hate we see so much on TV when a so-called Christian preacher and a homosexual discuss the issue on talk shows, Campolo also reminds Christians that if we Christians, and I would add we Mormons, pay attention, you old farts in Salt Lake City, this is for you too, if we cannot love our neighbors, respect them, homosexual or otherwise, as we love ourselves, then we are violating the commands of Jesus, Matthew 19, 19, and we ought to cease calling ourselves his followers. He feels as a charitable person that if Jesus were here, he would reach out and love homosexuals. Jesus' call for justice would require that we work to the end the discrimination against homosexuals into second-class citizens and them losing their constitutional rights. His discussion on 1 Timothy 1.10 is worth noting. He says that Paul was not condemning homosexuality as such, but what he was doing was condemning the ancient Greek practice of pederasty. In ancient Greece, education was performed between a, an adult male and a, and a young man. For the male to force that young man to have sexual relations with him, that is what Paul was arguing against. He further says, I find it interesting to note that the New Testament does not give hardly any space at all or attention to this sin as it does to other sins. Note his Christian bias in calling it a sin, by the way. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Even the best of intenders fall into the same old habit, don't they? The neglect of the poor is much worse, or the lack of love for others. Jesus never alludes to homosexuality in any of his teachings. Isn't that remarkable? The fact that homosexuality has become such an overriding concern in our day, especially down there in Utah, right, is because many contemporary preachers may be more uh, a reflection of their own homophobia and their own prejudice and bias and bigotry. Dr. Gerald Vann says the word homosexual is so often inaccurately used nowadays and it is simply a psychosexual orientation. It is not the sex act. 
John Shelby Spong in his book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. He should have included Mormonism in that title, shouldn't he have? He is describes using Paul's own descriptions of himself. He says that his self-anguish, his incredibly terrible put-downs of his own body, of his own guilty feelings, of his need for God's grace, is because Paul was a homosexual. Remarkable, isn't it? And this caused a great stir, but why? Why would it? Let's listen to how Paul describes himself. Here's where studying it in the Greek gives you the clue that is lost in the English translation. Having in mind makes much sense out of Paul's description of himself, his total unworthiness. Paul could have been writing himself as he passionately says, just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness and sanctification, Romans 6, 19. Impurity, greater and greater iniquity. These are harsh words and quite a judgment, isn't it? What is the member of the body that Paul is talking about? Yes, he does mention legs, hands, arms. But the Greek word here is melos, meaning member. What member? Here, the only organs that cannot be controlled by the will are genitalia. We can control our arms, our hands, our feet, our legs. Sexual arousal sometimes comes despite our best efforts. Is there any compelling reason to believe that Paul is talking here about anything else other than sexual desire that seems to plague him? Listen to his words, I am carnal. The Greek here is sarkikos, a very remarkable Greek word. I am sarkikos. I am sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, Romans 7, 14 and 15. The Greek term sarkikos comes from sarx. You want to know what that means? In one of the greatest lexicons of Christian literature, Spiros Zodiatis, the complete word study dictionary. Oh, sorry, I meant dictionary, not lexicon. He says the word sarx means weakness, frailty, imperfection, both physical and moral, and the seat of carnal appetites and desires, sinful passions and affections, whether physical or moral. This is Paul's description of himself. Paul further says, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, sarkikos. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. Romans 7, 18. So I see in my members, my members, sorry, the melos, the seat of desires and passion. Another law at war with the law in my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Can these passages really mean anything other than a confession of a sexual passion or a need beyond Paul's control? Part of his being about which he feels a guilt so profound that it becomes an aspect of self-loathing? Really?
And why haven't we been able to understand the humanness of others, even in high places? It's for a very simple reason. Because we have been brainwashed and culturally conditioned into thinking everyone in the apostles' circles, in the higher echelons of the church, even in Salt Lake, we've been conditioned to think they're all perfect. Paul's struggle and anguish with this issue of sexual illicit passion sounds very much like the accounts of many of the homosexuals in that book, Peculiar People, Mormons, and Same-Sex Orientation. Their reflections, their inner toil and doubts, their confrontations, their suicidal tendencies illustrate the terrible struggle exactly as Paul's description of his wrestle with this issue does. And it is explicitly the issue of homosexuality that causes the deep anguish. Not dishonesty, not cheating, not lying, not even stealing. No. It's a very personal struggle. With a vast emptiness only, one struggling with the issue can actually understand, feel, and describe. Paul's description is exact and accurate of this type of turmoil within a person's mind and a person's soul. It is wrong to condemn homosexuals using the Bible because of the context embedded and enforced in ancient times and on ancient peoples. It is largely the Christian, and I would add Mormon, misreading and misunderstanding of the Bible which we pick up and we use as if it's the norm. But it isn't the norm, because we know in ancient times there were many different Christian groups and several of them had homosexual practices, men and women. And I'm talking Christian groups. The issue of homosexuality carries a lot of weight to it in our minds of virtually everyone confronted with it. Anthropologists say it's a learned behavior. Some scientists are trying to discover if there's a gene that causes it. But religious people claim it is religiously wrong and the Bible condemns it. In all of this, we know one thing. The issue will not be settled and can actually damage our fellow human beings. Our brothers and sisters with an all too quick, shallow reading of the scriptures. With so much at hand religiously, politically, psychologically, morally, emotionally, and ethically, it behooves us to be judicious in our announcing apocalyptic judgments of wrath and doom on somebody who has a different lifestyle than we do. A sympathetic approach is what is called for. Anyone who has claimed they follow the loving, forgiving Jesus Christ, even if they love to brag that they're special witnesses of his holy name, you must, these have been quick with judgment and slow in learning, you must claim that personalities in the Bible are homosexual, which is unnerving to anyone who enjoys company with the Bible and the ancient saints, of course, because we are culturally taught to abhor it, right? 
Many voices are proclaiming loudly that's exactly what we should do. What this paper has tried to do is inform people that the Bible is a very poor guide on this subject. And it's usually hot-headed Christians, and I would add old farts in Salt Lake City as well, who are even miscarried readings and interpreting the Bible for their own personal use. While the Jews were condemning one of their fellow humans, they were all too ready to stone her, right? Jesus simply sat on his ass and scribbled in the sand. When they demanded he exact damning testimony along with them, because realize the adulteress had been caught and she was guilty, and justification for the death sentence, they wanted him to join them. And they simply said, He who is without sin among you, go ahead and chuck the first stone. One by one they left. And then he asked her, well, where are your accusers? And she said, well, they're gone. And he goes, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. This idea of forgiveness, love, kindness, not excluding from a community, but incorporating the people in with help. The Mr. Rogers attitude of I like you just the way you are. Oh, that the old farts in Salt Lake City, the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and dodos would begin taking that approach. What good could they do in the world, right? We need to have people who accept Jesus when he says, follow me. Not just talk about it or cry behind closed doors or whatever. No, follow him in how he acted and what he said. Now, what is really remarkable to me is that this commandment of God that Mormon dodoism keeps saying we must keep, we can't just ignore the commandments, there is not one scriptural basis for anywhere in the scriptures condemning the LGBTQ. Not one. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not in the Doctrine and Covenants, not in the Protergate Price, not in the Book of Mormon. There is literally no scriptural precedent for this kind of rampant, prejudicial, stupidity, and myopic bigotry. It's time to quit talking about reverencing Jesus' holy name as a special witness and start doing what Jesus would have done, don't we think? So thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism. Remember, be good, do well, have fun, be kind, love one another, and I will see you in the next Backyard Professor video.